I believe it was a devotional written up in the Men of Integrity devotional that uh, a dad tells a story. He tells a story about uh, one sleepy Sunday afternoon driving around with his five-year-old boy. And they happened to drive by a cemetery and it just so happened that that afternoon, the boy noticed that there was a freshly excavated grave ready to uh, prepare for a funeral service. And the boy says, look, Dad, one got out. <laughs> That's what we're here to celebrate today. Look, one got out, but it's even bigger than that. It's bigger than just one person escaping death. It's the celebration of the reality of the one who escaped death, but more than that, conquered sin and death on our behalf so we can all escape death. And that is death in the permanent, eternal sense. And so, wow, we are happy to be together on this Easter morning celebrating with you. And those of you who have joined us online, we're so glad that you've joined us as well. It is the most important thing that we believe as followers of Jesus, that he is risen from the dead. And it is the most important thing that we have solidly fixed in our hearts as a certainty. And we continue this series called The Certainty. It is so important and so certain that this is what Paul said about the resurrection. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless. And your faith is useless. If Christ has not been raised, then preaching is useless. Our faith is useless. This one certainty you must have or no religion, no faith is going to help you in eternity. And so we start with such a bold and certain declaration today as we jump into the story as Luke tells it, as we learn about two disciples who were on that Sunday, that resurrection Sunday afternoon, walking to their village, a little village called Emmaus. And there they met what they thought was a stranger, and strange things took place that day with that stranger that completely changed their sad and distraught condition about what they had witnessed over the weekend into a certainty that changed their lives forever. And it's uniquely Luke's perspective. No other gospel tells about these two disciples. And uh, I've preached on this before, but there are a couple of elements that I've discovered that just touch my heart that I've never preached before, and I'm excited about this message. Let's jump into Luke chapter 24. I'll read a lengthy section, but we're going to be covering more than this section, starting at verse 13, and it reads this way. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together, they were discussing everything that had taken place, and while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. 
By the way, this would be a good time to let you know that today's title is Their Eyes Were Opened. Their Eyes Were Opened. At this point, they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked them. That's such an ironic question from Jesus himself. What things? He's inviting them to just unload. What things, he asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Let's jump into point number one. Point number one is an accurate description is not enough. So a lot of us perhaps know an accurate description of what took place on the first Easter morning when Jesus raised from the dead, conquering death. And we could describe the events and we have an accurate description. But what we learn here is that that is not enough. I mean, let's just pause and look at how accurately they described the events and the happenings of that weekend. They said Jesus was a powerful prophet in action and speech. That was verse 19. He was handed over and crucified. That was verse 20. We were hoping he was the one to redeem Israel. What they mean is we were hoping he was the one, the Messiah, the Christ, the one we've been waiting for for hundreds of years. We thought he was it. And then they're accurately described. Today, it's three days later, today we heard, and the tomb is empty. And ladies that we know, this is not third hand, ladies from among us, They reported seeing angels, and they said that the angel said he's alive. So they had an accurate description of all the events that took place. I mean, this is a great description of the good news, and yet they're discouraged. They're sad. They're arguing. They're troubled. It is not enough to only know accurately the events that took place. What's missing? Well, you could maybe guess by the series title, what's missing is the certainty. What's missing is the certainty that it really did happen. They describe the events, but they're not sure about it. And they're bewildered, and they're confused, and they don't know what to think. They have no idea what all this means. And so, point number one is an accurate description of the events is not enough. And point number two is 
They were still discouraged. And so I just need to ask us before we move on, have you ever been there? You know that he is risen, but you're still discouraged. You know that God loves you, but you're still discouraged. You know that you have a relationship with God and he sent his son to die for your sins and was risen from the dead and is able to open up eternity for you and you can live with God forever and you're still frightened and you're still troubled. You believe you're forgiven, but somehow you're not dancing a jig. That's my wife's phrase, by the way. (laughs) You believe you are saved, you believe you're going to heaven, but somebody looking at you would never know it. It's like somebody needs to tell your face that you're excited about this. What is going on with that incongruity where you're still discouraged? I mean, they heard the great news of Easter that morning and they're as discouraged and as sad and as distraught and as confused as you could possibly be. And I'm glad they were for our sakes because we get to hear what took place and the the care that Jesus gave to bring their confusion into an open-eyed reality and certainty. So what's with that? Still being discouraged when you know these things, this good news has taken place. Let's revisit verse 17. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. So let's take a look at that. Discouraged. They look discouraged. They have all the morning's good news and they're still discouraged. But then what I want us to focus on next is the word dispute. What is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? The confusion and the distress and the uncertainty causes fuses to be short. And there's argumentativeness between these two. But I want us to go a little deeper than that as if we were there. Sometimes there's a dispute within ourselves. What would it be like if Jesus just stopped us as we're walking along in our life's journey and he just, we didn't know it was him, and he just came up to us and stopped us and said, what, why are you so conflicted? What is the dispute going on inside of you? And I think we'd do just like those disciples. We would stop in the middle of our walk, whatever our life's track is, and perhaps because Jesus asked it, we would look so discouraged, maybe even we'd put our faces down, and we would have to stop and think about his question. What is it that I'm conflicted about? Why am I so short-fused? Why am I so angry? Why am I so frustrated? What is it that's got me inside? Why do I act like this? And what's going on with me? What is it that I'm so confused about? Perhaps we expected some things from God and he's not delivering. Perhaps we expected his protection and 
our interpretation of the events that took place is he, he failed us. He failed to protect us. And we're hurting. And we're confused. And we're conflicted about our faith in God. Perhaps we expected that life would be all roses and rainbows. And it's not. It's just simply not. And we blame God for that. And we're conflicted inside. We want to look at him as a loving God who has, is going to bring us through. And if he really loved me, we think, he wouldn't bring me through this. This doesn't seem loving to me. And we end up being conflicted in our faith. And we don't know what to do with that. We're still discouraged. We're kind of angry. We're let down. And we're not sure what to do with that discouragement. If Jesus came up to us and asked you today, what are you conflicted over as it relates to your faith? What is this dispute about inside of you? Could you take some time and reflect and would you be able to answer that question? Maybe we're like the boy who saw his mother put a pie in the oven and he got so excited, he loved his mother's pies. And then he's just hanging out and just waiting and waiting and heard the ding and came to the kitchen and she pulls out the pie, but it's just the pie crust. He was so mad. Are you kidding me? All you made is the crust? Who makes just the crust? I hate the pie crust. I just like the inside stuff. And he was so mad, he stomped out the front door and ran away. Got only a block or so away and realized that there's really nowhere to go and turned around. And it's a good thing he did because his mother could set him straight. Son, I'm not through yet. This is just the pie crust. There's going to be a pie. I'll finish the work that I started, and you're going to love it, and all is well. Folks, we're in the middle of our story, and God is not through. Don't be mad at God because you're looking at the pie crust. There's more to come. The story is going to be completed and the victorious one at the resurrection morning is going to be even more victorious and the glory is public right now. It's for those who trust him and those who know him and those who begin to see the world the way he sees the world and what's coming. An accurate description of the events is not enough. They were still discouraged. Point number three, how were their eyes open? How were their eyes open? We're going to look at verse 26. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? This was Jesus' answer when they said all this stuff and were very discouraged. He says, you foolish ones. He said, What's, what are you discouraged about? Tell me about it. They listed it all out. And he says, don't you realize this is what the entire Bible has said has to happen? Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? That's what was missing in Judaic faith in Jesus' day. 
They did not see a suffering Messiah. All of the passages from the Old Testament that talked about his suffering, they interpreted it as for some other character. This couldn't be the Messiah. He's coming for a forever reign and gonna reign forever and he's gonna overrule all of the enemies and take us through roses and rainbows. And Jesus goes through, let me just read verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, by the way, that, those two phrases are often how they summarize the entire Old Testament scriptures, their Jewish Bible, the law and the prophets. He went through the entire law and the prophets. He interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Man, I wish I could be at that Bible study. Hear from Jesus himself, just page by page. This is about me, and this means this, and this is about me, and this means this, but he's not saying this is about me. He's still a stranger to them. As they're just going through this amazing Bible study they'd never heard before. It's like, nobody taught us this in Jewish school. And they're just not sure what to do with that. Now, we're gonna take a look at how this opened their eyes And there's something that takes place next that I'm gonna skip on purpose. We'll get back to it, but we're gonna jump to verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? So I I wanted us to just ponder that for a little bit and I have a a quote for you that I want to just read and it's on the screen for you. Uh, Their eyes were opened because Jesus opened the scriptures to them, but their eyes did not open until they pursued him. I skipped some scripture and this is where we're going next and it's, it's the piece that we just forget and it's the piece that we need to hear today because our eyes will not open until we pursue him. And I want you to see this in the text. Luke 24, 28. They came near the village where they were going, and he, the stranger to them, Jesus, we are in the know, because Luke tells us in advance, this Jesus came up to them, this is all Jesus talking to them. Jesus gave the impression he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. So he gives off the impression he's just gonna pass on by and they urge him, don't, don't, don't. And I just want us to ponder this and so I'm gonna put a very general and loose theory. This is not something to stake your life on. This is just my way of helping us think this through. Here's a theory. People have as much of God as they want. If we don't have any more of God than we have, it is not because we don't have what we want. It is because we don't want any more of God than we have. God will test us on this. It's actually a strategy of his that we see in scripture repeatedly. And I want us to just touch on it briefly in a few places. He did this with Abraham. In Genesis 18, three, we hear Abraham said, my Lord, 
If I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. God revealed himself in kind of an unusual way that Genesis tells us about, and it looks like then they keep going. He, he urged, don't, don't keep going. He's pursuing, 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 and he was tested on this. The patriarch Jacob wrestled with God all night long. As you're just reading through, we don't know who he's wrestling with. It seems like an angel. It seems like something supernaturally powerful. It's like this fight is fixed, and yet Jacob doesn't know it. Then Jacob's not going to let go. And this being says, let me go. And Jacob says, I refuse to let you go. Why? He absolutely wants the blessing. He's so concerned about the blessing, the covenant of God. He wants the covenant blessing so much in his life. He refuses to let go. And lo and behold, God obliges. Again, the strategy, I want to pull away, I want to pull away, I want to pull away. It's the impression that I'm going to pass you by and Jacob refuses and God loves that. Loves the pursuit, the refusal, the persistence. Please bless me. I want more. And he does bless him. In another spot in the Gospels, there's a Gentile woman. In Matthew 15, she's a Canaanite. This is the, the person from the very place that God has displaced the peoples. The atrocities that were committed in Canaan before God gave them the land was horrific, and God put judgment upon the Canaanites. But there's still Canaanites living in and amongst the people. They never really thoroughly cleaned it out. Pagans in their midst. And this pagan heard about this Jesus And this woman wanted a miracle so desperately, she comes to Jesus, and Jesus gives her some put-and-off kind of words. He sounds mean. I liked watching a particular video of him because it always seems so mean, but in the video, which we can't see on the text, this is an interpretation, we don't know, Jesus still had this very pleasant, inviting, smiling face while he's saying, I've come for the Israelites I've not come to give crumbs to the dogs. But she's not put off by it. She comes back with, but when the dogs are under the table of the children, the dogs still get to eat the crumbs that fall off the table. And she pursues and pursues and pursues, and she will not let it go. And Jesus then, and this is to her great delight, says, I've not seen faith like this in Israel. God loves it when we respond to his pursuit with our pursuit. That's what he's after. The persistence of these two disciples paid off big time as Jesus gives off the impression he's just going to keep on going. Had they not said anything, he would have. How many times have we failed to pursue and we miss it. We miss the certainty that could have happened if we pursued God and pursued Jesus and wanted more. And he walks on by waiting for the pursuit. He has pursued us and loved us so much. I mean, if you put it in just a romantic relationship, pursuit is just magnetic. It just makes you feel wonderful. And it actually demands a response. If there's no response, it's like something's not right inside of us. And 
these two, they said, and they urged him to stay. So here's what happened in verse 30. It was as Jesus reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then, then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him to have, they recognized him right there. But I wish we could just imagine this truly happening. And it truly happened. And it helped me to watch the movie Risen last night. Hey, if you haven't watched that lately, watch the movie Risen. And one of those scenes, it's like a, a scene where the, the tribune is trying to find out what has happened and get down to the bottom of it and he finally finds the very guy he's only met on the cross, dead. It's the same face, but he's alive. And then as soon as he's just coming to church, he's falling apart. What do I do with this? He was dead. Now he's alive. And as soon as he's just watching the interaction, he's very real. That's him. He sees the scars. He sees the things on the side. And as he's interacting, he's gone. This happens again here. Then he disappears. And these two disciples said, weren't our hearts just burning within us? It's because Jesus opened the scriptures that their eyes could be opened, but not until they pursued. I hope you hear that from me today. That's my one point. So many people know, the, know about God, know about Jesus, could tell the gospel story to another and that other person they tell it to might respond because they pursue, whereas the teller doesn't even really know it with certainty because it doesn't touch their life because their life is all about me, 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 and it isn't about God one whit. If you come to terms with the pursuit of Jesus, your life will be transformed as the center changes from a self-centered life to this is all about Jesus, I can't believe it, this is real, and he makes all the difference in my life. And so we come to a conclusion today. How is your certainty? Have you come to a place where you're so certain you want more than you have of God? Where he begins to reorient your life and shape every aspect of your life in tune with Jesus so that you can live out the resurrection life in your life. Freedom from sin. Freedom from death. Freedom from fear. An empowered life. Now, up until this point, we are finishing Luke, but let me just say, Luke is just the description. It's the explanation that gives meaning to the description. And so our conclusion of this series is not today, our conclusion of this series is next week when Peter stands up and preaches. What does this all mean? And he explains it, and the church is born. So I hope you'll come back for the exciting conclusion of the certainty, and I hope between now and then you take steps to pursue. I've opened the word for you today just like these disciples, there should be a warming up of the heart, a sense in which you need to respond. These two had an immediate response when Jesus disappeared. You can read about it as you keep reading. 
What is your response? How is your heart set aflame? What steps will you take? How will you pursue? You have a response now that's up to you. And whether you respond or not is going to do something about your certainty. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the power of the resurrection story, which we know is not made up. It's his story, his story. The center of what makes sense of all of history, so much of it leading up to this as you've revealed, so much of it creating the tensions that we are currently living in, even as you revealed in advance. And we can't wait for the pie. Lord, we are waiting for the glory but we want to be faithful even now and experience heaven's glory even now as we walk with you. Help us to be faithful to you, pursue you, experience more of you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming today. Hope to see you back next week for Know the Certainty. That's the title for next week. And if you have any need for prayer of any kind or you have a friend that you'd like us to be praying for, whatever that might be, we're going to have a prayer team to the right of the stage. Leaders, ministry leaders, anybody that, uh, board members, etc. if you wouldn't mind being part of that prayer team, that'd be great. God bless you. See you next week.